and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins. I'm so happy you have joined me today. Today, I'm going to interview Phil Weiser. Phil is the Colorado Attorney General, and he was sworn in in January of 2019, and he is basically the state's legal chief officer, and uh, he's one of the most interesting people I've met. He's a great lawyer and committed to building an innovative and collaborative organization that addresses a range of statewide challenges, from addressing the opiate epidemic to reforming our criminal justice system to protecting our land, air, and water. He's dedicated his life to law, justice, and public service before running for office. Phil served as the Hatfield Professor of Law and Dean of the University of Colorado Law School here in my home state where he founded the Silicon Flatiron Center for Law, Technology, and Entrepreneurship. He also co-chaired the Colorado Innovation Council. He is also the son of a Holocaust survivor. His mother was one of the youngest known survivors of a concentration camp, and he shares how this has really shaped his view on the American dream and because he's living it, and his family has lived it. He's a brilliant leader and has so much great leadership advice, which I never really thought of attorneys as leaders, but when I met Phil, I was so impressed with with everything that he had to say. It's so in alignment with how we need to look at leadership, no matter what side of the line you are on, left center, right center. Uh, We all can appreciate good leaders, even if we don't always agree on the policy issues. I met Phil through my good friend, Todd Seelman. Todd Seelman is one of the best antitrust attorneys in the nation and a good, good friend of mine. And he said, Carrie, you've got to meet Phil. He's a great person, great for you to know. And you'll have a lot of fun interviewing him on your podcast. And I did. He's very pragmatic, practical, and down to earth. So with that, I will bring you Phil. Hold tight and I'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, I teed up Phil for you, Phil Weiser, the Attorney General for the State of Colorado. Phil, thanks for so much for coming on Reflect Forward today. It's great to be with you, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. So what is it like being an Attorney General? What's the best part of the job and what's the hardest? It's a dream job for me. If you love service, if you feel a call to service and you're a lawyer, and you also have reverence for the law as a tool for problem solving and for managing a complex society. This is the dream job because I have, I have to serve the people of Colorado using the law as a tool for justice and protecting the public. That means every day my question is how am I serving the people of Colorado? The hardest part is it's a team. Over 500 plus people who are some lawyers, many non-lawyers, and we need to build the best culture as a team to serve the people of Colorado. And when I came in, the culture was a little bit more reactive, a little more siloed. And I've worked hard around a set of values, which is that we're principled public servants. We operate according to principle and the rule of law. We serve the public and we're innovative and we're better together. And so it's hard to transform a culture and elevate a culture. You know this, Carrie. It's hard work. I agree. I love that answer. And I don't think a lot of people necessarily equate lawyers to being leaders, but that's just not the case. So how did you develop your leadership style over the years? When I look back, I I actually would say I started in high school. 
I was the organizer of a model United Nations conference and had a valuable mentor, the faculty advisor. Then I went to college and I, I took on a variety of leadership roles. I was president of our student council, president of the debate team. I was the sports director of the radio station. I was a resident assistant. I was a fundraiser for a congressional campaign. So I took on these roles, all of which put me in a leadership position. And part of the values where I went to school as a Quaker school was consensus. And that, for me, has always been a true north, which is we're stronger together when we build alignment around values, when people have an opportunity to be heard, and we work hard so that it's not like command and control, but it's more of a collaborative team effort. So my style is collaborative team-oriented, and I really trace it back to high school and college before going to law school. And what I think a lot of lawyers may underestimate is those leadership skills. You're often the person running the meeting, or you're often the person who's turned to for how do we proceed, and the emotional intelligence about how you lead a team is way more important than like your traditional IQ. You may have the smartest plan, but if no one wants to go along with you because they don't trust you or they don't think you care about them, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that that bodes well into something that you said about empathy, that empathy is the most important competency for lawyers to possess. Tell us why you believe that. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Whether you're a CEO of a company, whether you are a mayor of a town, whether you're a police chief, whatever you're doing, if your teammates don't believe that you care, if your clients don't believe you care, if your customers don't believe you care, that's not going to end well for you. Because that emotional bond, the trust that comes from someone feeling cared about is transformative. The phrase that I started with, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care, is something that teachers learn. Because students can tell if the teachers really care about them as a person. It's one of the most fundamental competencies that teachers need. The teachers that we think about as mentors, transformative teachers, like my high school associate teacher, who's that advisor for the Model UN, I felt like he cared about my learning, my development, and that made all the difference. And so is empathy something they teach you in law school? So this is a great question on multiple levels. First, let me start with, can you teach empathy? To which I will say, I believe it can be learned. Someone can refuse to learn it. You can have the best teacher and the person refuse to learn it, so your teacher, quote unquote, isn't teaching it. But I think you can create opportunities for people to learn. And an opportunity to learn empathy means you're putting someone in a situation where they relate to another person. And then you can afterwards have a conversation. Did you listen to the other person? This happens in medicine a lot where they look how quickly a doctor started diagnosing as opposed to how much listening they did. So I believe you can create situations where people can learn empathy. To your question, however, law schools rarely create those situations and they underestimate how important it is. I was dean of law school, so I guess I partially have to plead guilty to this. What I would say in Colorado Law's defense is we went very strong on what many people call experiential learning, like a legal negotiations class or a law school clinic. And those are the environments where you're more likely to learn empathy because you're dealing with a client 
or you're in a role play situation that forces you to think, how is the other person seeing the situation? So I went to Colorado School of Mines, engineering school, very different than law school. And they don't shockingly teach empathy <laughs> uh, engineering school. And I think it's such a mistake. Those soft skills are so important in developing your interpersonal skills, whether you're a leader or an individual contributor. And it's really unfortunate that we leave this out because if we aren't being taught it at home, you know, how do we really learn the importance of it if we're not learning it in school too? So I'm a big advocate that no matter how technical the school is, we should be learning soft skills and practicing soft skills like empathy and communicating and listening and all the things that actually is what makes us successful in the workplace. I totally agree, Carrie. And I'll tell you, work we're doing on policing right now includes thinking about empathy. Some people would refer to it as de-escalation or an ethical decision-making mindset. Because if we train police in that way, they will better serve the public. And if you don't train people, give them the tools, whether you're a lawyer, engineer, or a teacher, or you know, a police officer, you're gonna be at a big disadvantage. Yeah, I agree. I think it comes down to being able to see people as people. And I know that's hard, especially in policing, when you see so many horrible things, you can become desensitized. But we can't allow ourselves to do that because if we just start you know, stereotyping, putting everyone in a box instead of trying to be empathetic and understanding to the each, each's unique and individual story and why he or she got to that point, uh, we're only going to create more problems. So I think that's a really noble uh, effort and one that will pay off. Do you find that police officers are are open to learning empathy and listening and, and these kind of communication tools? We're in the early days of doing this. And my theory of the case is if police officers believe we're developing this training because we care about them as human beings, as public servants, and we want them to be more effective in serving, I believe they will embrace this training because it's coming from a place of support. That's how we are working to frame and engage officers across state. I know where you are, Durango, you've got some really terrific law enforcement professionals there who actually have done training like the kind I'm talking about. So it is a not novel undertaking. It's been done in some places very successfully, we want to make sure it's done statewide and it's going to characterize how our police academies operate, how our police forces function. If I can mention one other point, which is the opposite of the empathy we're talking about would be demonization. Empathy means you see and you feel the way someone else does. You may not have that life experience. You may not agree with their viewpoints, but you can at least understand how they are experiencing the world and they will then feel heard. The opposite is you demonize somebody, you view them as the other, and you suggest that they're unworthy of being heard. And that is a risky proposition because then you break the bonds of citizenship and we're no longer all part of a project of what I'll call collective governance or a society. Instead, we are fighting one another. And that's unfortunately something we see too much of today. Yeah, you know, I think indifference also plays into it. Um, you know, throughout the state of Colorado, as you know, we have a big homelessness population. Durango does too. And one of the things that I've really been working, teaching my son is to be kind. You know, even if 
there's a person who is on a street corner asking for money and you don't you know, give them anything, you can still look at them, see them, and acknowledge and smile with kindness because that indifference, that not even seeing that you exist, almost could be more painful in some situations than being demonized. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on indifference? It is often said the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference or apathy. Yeah. Because if you hate somebody, you're in a relationship with them. If you are indifferent or apathetic, you are numb to them. Yeah. And part of the challenge for our society is not only demonization, which is a problem. It's also indifference and disengagement. So if we have a society where people feel a bond of kinship, we're all in this together, I care about everybody, that is the healthiest basis to build a society. If people are viewing each other sometimes in, as I said, demonizing or polarizing ways, that's dangerous. And if people are viewing one another in difference, I don't care at all. That's a problem too, and maybe a bigger problem. And so how do we fix it? I mean, what is, what's your solution to the state of the world or the state of at least the United States? It's what you're teaching your son to care about everybody. Everybody matters. And people can get to, to there with different routes. So one route for some people is religion. Some people are inspired by the idea that everybody is a beloved person who was creating God's image. And that might be a way to create humanity and compassion. Other people get there from more secular, philosophical or other channels. However you get there, what I would just say that all of us can work on our empathy and our attitudes towards other people. And what you're teaching your son is the message everybody needs, which is everybody matters. Mm -hmm. And what I would tell people is how you treat the world comes back to you. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I My personal philosophy is to be the bringer of joy and make everybody feel uh, uniquely special when they walk away from an interaction with me. And so when you approach every person that way of what value am I going to bring? How am I going to make this person's day better? How am I going to make this person feel seen and heard? You show up with a different level of intentionality and you can do that to anybody, no matter what the differences you have between one another. And so that's that's how I try to, to show up. It really has made a positive difference in all of my relationships, but it also makes me feel better. Like, that's what I don't understand. Like, why do people want to be mean to each other? You feel so bad about yourself when it's done. It feels so good to be nice and helpful and kind and make people feel special. I don't understand why that's not what we are addicted to instead of the spitefulness and indecisiveness and polarization that so many of us go to. The challenge is there is a certain draw around collective hating and fear. And if people find themselves drawn to that, I would agree with you. It is a black hole. It doesn't lead to good places, but it does pull you in. Yeah. You're also right, Carrie, love. Kinship is a draw as well. And if you try to fill your heart with love and joy, then that will come back to you. Let me add an intellectual lens because we've been dealing on the spiritual and emotional side. But intellectually, life is more interesting if you can greet others with an open mind and instead of passing judgment, ask questions. So you're with somebody who sees things totally different, voted differently than you in the presidential election. Instead of writing them off, judging them, hating them, 
why not try to understand why they see things the way they do? And you might learn something. I agree with you completely. I try to practice that all the time. It's not always easy, but I try to practice it. <laughs> all right, let's talk about the legal profession. So it is built on the understanding that there will be disagreements um, and that the goal is to find resolutions. So how can this framework and mindset uh, be used in business and in politics? What I would suggest that is at the heart of the rule of law is orderly decision-making. And a principle that is at the heart of our legal system, a core constitutional principle, is due process. Due process means notice and an opportunity to be heard. One reason that lawyers often run meetings is because lawyers are versed and they are embedded in this value of due process, and so they have an understanding we need all viewpoints to be heard. Now, the, again, the emotional or spiritual side is psychological safety. Ideally, you're in a world where it's not theoretical due process. Like you can imagine an environment in business where, all right, let's get all the viewpoints on the table, but people are afraid to speak. That's not real due process. That's nominal due process. Real due process is you're going around the table literally or figuratively, and people are being honest. And then you work together to solve problems. And this is what people miss about lawyers. The best lawyering is not zero sum, I win, you lose, but it's win-win. How do we both win? And the literature that I might point people to is coming out of the Harvard Negotiation Project called Getting to Yes. The best lawyers are creative problem solvers, understand how to get to yes, see different perspectives, objectives, and find creative solutions to get there. If you're in business, that should be a roadmap to success. And I would say that the best lawyers can succeed in business and politics because they take that mindset, they take that roadmap, and they find ways to succeed. A lot of people, when they think about the law, think about guilty, not guilty. But they're not thinking about a well-developed regulation that addresses concerns of regulated businesses. They're not thinking about a well-developed contractual partnership that addresses opportunities and brings together complementary skill sets. And those are quintessential lawyerly tasks. I like that. You know, one of the things that I've always really respected about lawyers, and I've been in a few patent disputes, and it can get, uh, you know, what seems to be like emotional and heated and arguing on behalf of your client. And then afterwards, you know, opposing counsels go out for a beer <laughs> and you know it's just you're you're there doing your job and you're representing your client and you're you know trying to find a win-win maybe a slightly more of a win for your client but there's not this personal thing like is that an accurate perception of the legal profession or or is that yes. just the lawyers i've seen okay <laughs> yes and i think the the point is we're in a profession where we will often deal with one another again and again. So game theorists would call this a repeat playing game, which creates the incentive for people to treat each other well. Because again, like we were talking earlier, if you treat someone badly, it'll come back to hurt you. So instead, we have relationships built on respect, built on a system where we have to rigorously analyze issues. And yes, if something goes to court and it's contested, may the best argument win with whoever can back up their arguments with evidence. And that is a system that we all live with and it creates a discipline. So ideally 
we know, hey, I've got a losing case. It's my job to tell my client we're not going to win this one. And that ideally can be done with that collaborative spirit where lawyers learn to work together and ideally bring their clients along. Yeah, I like that. I, I try to, to teach that to my employees around um, competitors because I do not allow any negative talk about our competitors because one, you never know when they're going to be a partner. You never know when you're going to employ one of them. You just don't know what's ever going to happen. And it's just not professional. Like we battle hard, but it doesn't mean that you have to be ugly or um, or hate them. And so that's something that I try to instill in business in the way that we look at, at competition is it's good for us. It's healthy for us. And we can be friendly and nice and have a beer with them and still go out and try to win. And so taking that mentality and bringing it into business is really, I think, um, a valuable asset, but not something that a lot of companies are able to do, right? It's always kill the competition. <laughs> And you don't want to kill the competition. Competition is good, which we'll talk more about later, but uh, you know, it makes you better and it, it gives people choices. So anyway, it's something I, I've tried to take that model of, of battle it out in the, in the courtroom and then be friends um, afterwards and bring it into our business. It's wonderful. I do think that relationships are way more impactful than sometimes people give them credit for, but you never know, like you said, who's going to be your next reference for a job. Um, I've heard some great stories of a lawyer who's on one side of the table and then the CEO on the other side says, can I hire you? Yeah. And that's a high compliment. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. All right. Let's get a little bit more personal. So your mother was born in a Nazi concentration camp in 1945 and is said to be one of the youngest survivors of the Holocaust. So how did all of this history and her experience, your grandmother's experience, shape you? When I talk about the rule of law and constitutional freedoms that our nation is built on, it is personal for me. My mom, my grandparents came here having suffered the worst type of religious persecution that we've seen in a very long time. They came to a nation who was founded on freedom of religion, on due process, on welcoming everyone regardless of background. I don't take those values for granted. My commitment to serve the people of Colorado is guided by my appreciation of those values and my appreciation that we've had opportunities. I was born, like I said, to a mom who came here not knowing the language, to grandparents who came here not knowing the language with no skills. So from one generation born with nothing in a concentration camp to Colorado's attorney general. I worked in the White House for Barack Obama on the Supreme Court with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's America. It's a remarkable story. I just finished reading uh, Victor Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning, which has so many parallels to reflect forward. I love that book, um, even though it was a very hard read. But he talks about the power of hope and belief. Um, that life has more in store for you, and that's what keeps you going on, even in those times of hopelessness. Did you see that in your grandmother uh, when you were growing up? 100%. I called my grandmother Bubby, and I would ask her, Bubby, how did you believe you would have a better future after suffering and surviving? And she said, it's easier to believe. She refused to stop believing that she could have a better future, and she did because she was so positive. 
what is the intellectual explanation of this comes from an Israeli, uh, Amos Tversky, who said, don't be a pessimist, you suffer twice. That's a great, a great quote. <laughs> and so true. And that's what I think out of the three ways of finding meaning that Victor talks about, finding meaning and suffering, I think that's a really powerful one. The other two are more obvious, right? In your work and in your relationships and love. But finding the, the meaning and suffering, I think is such a powerful way to live. Um, you know, humans suffer, all of us suffer, some of us more than others, some suffer horrific um, experiences that are hard to even comprehend, but we all suffer. And so we shouldn't be afraid of that. We should embrace it and learn how to find meaning in it. Have you found meaning in suffering personally? I, I have, and I've worked with others who have as well. Um, for me, it was more that I was, uh, so I grew up in um, the Bronx where I was um, in an urban environment and then my parents moved me to a suburb, suburban environment. And although it wasn't suffering, it was definitely a culture shock. Um, so I sort of, the kids who might be picked last for the football teams, I don't know how to play. Um, and so the question is, how do you experience um, difficulty, challenges? And in my case, I was resilient and I wouldn't give up and learned to hang in there. And that's an important character trait. The other one that I've seen other people do is when you suffer real trauma, for example, um, Charles Battle is someone who was graduating high school and was the victim of a show up where he was quickly subject to a unduly suggestive identification procedure that Denver used, and he was wrongfully arrested because of that. And he missed his high school graduation. He was at the top of his class, and it was a traumatic experience for him. And he didn't get the charges dropped for six months. He now has worked with his mom to change the law so we don't have these unduly suggestive show-ups. Um, that's an example of enduring trauma and finding meaning and purpose and then making life better for others. That's a great example. Uh, I think that the worst possible suffering I could ever imagine is losing my son. And I don't know how I could go on. And after after reading Man's Search for Meaning, it was like, no, you you figure out how to take that suffering and turn it into something that is positive and good and can do good in the world, even though you can never replace you know the hole that's in your heart. And so I think that's a really powerful way to be able to turn those really dramatic, traumatic, um, tough experiences into something that's impactful. So. That really yeah, that's what Tom, me. so my, my friend Tom Sullivan suffered that loss. His son Alex was killed in the Aurora movie shooting. Yeah. And Tom decided to run for public office to address gun violence and to promote gun safety. And that is finding purpose and meaning from trauma. And he wears Alex's jacket and he honors Alex's memory by, again, taking the trauma and finding purpose. I love that. All right, let's get back to business. I met you through my good friend, Todd Seelman. He's one of the country's best antitrust attorneys, at least in my opinion. I don't know a lot of them, but I tell you, I trust Todd. Uh, Todd's and, wonderful. Oh, he is. Uh, so why are antitrust and competition laws so important in business? We were talking before about competition in business, and you took an attitude, Carrie, that, as you noted, was not 
the dominant one. Your attitude is, I accept, embrace, and welcome competition. It makes everybody better. Adam Smith wrote about most people in business and said, what they actually want is to be a monopolist. Because if you're a monopolist, you're able to charge customers more, not treat them as well. And they still stick with you because they know where to go. We see many industries that have become more concentrated because of mergers, in some cases because of excluding rivals. And for consumers, that's a really bad thing. I'll give you an example. Airlines. We've seen a lot of mergers in airlines, so many so that most individuals have two, maybe three choices when they fly. When you only have two choices really to fly, if one of those choices treats you really badly, you don't have a lot of options where you go, particularly if the two know they're the two choices. And so their prices tend to be not necessarily what we would call quid pro quo collusion, but they tend to be tacitly wink and a nod similarly to one another. I've seen that in airlines vividly after oil prices went down big time and I think it's 2016. In a competitive world, if input prices go down and oil prices are like a significant part of how much it costs to fly a plane, but they didn't cut the prices for passengers. Instead, they made record profits and gave away free peanuts. Um, that is a warning sign that that industry is not one that's good for consumers. I can tell you the same story about pharmaceuticals where insulin prices have gone up, up, and up because only three players are in that industry. We need to make sure that competition is allowed, is not deterred or excluded. And that's why when we see cases like in Google and Facebook where the companies have engaged in what antitrust lawyers call predatory conduct, we are willing to step up and take action to work to restore competition to that marketplace. Yeah, so talk about that. Um, you know, Google and Facebook are in the news all the time, testifying in front of Congress, but I don't think many people really understand what's predatory about what they're doing, right? They just click on Chrome and go search for what they want to search for or, you know, like their friends posts on Facebook. So can you explain why this is so important and what's really going on? Sure thing. First, Google. Google has these two very profitable monopolies. Search, internet search. If you want to do a search, you Google it. It's become, you know, its own description. The Microsoft Bing platform is pretty marginal compared to Google's search platform. Second, and this is the economic engine, you can buy search advertising terms, which Google monetizes their search monopoly. To protect that cash, um, generating business, they have found ways to exclude rivals from threatening their monopoly. The most notable example was when smartphones were coming out, that was a potential new platform where you could have imagined alternative search taking off. But Google cut a deal with the iPhone to be the default search provider on the iPhone. So when you go into your browser on the iPhone, you do a search, it's Google. And then of course, Google also built the Android platform to, to make that the other alternative, which it also has the default positioning. And so that was a way Google was able to monopolize search, even as there was a moment where you could have easily had a threat. We're now at another such moment. It's often called the Internet of Things, or IoT for short. Think about your connected cars. What's going to be your search platform connected cars? If you had an Amazon Alexa-based platform, they could use a different search. 
but Google has locked up that frontier with these restrictive contracts. That is not competition on the merits. That is predatory behavior, and that's protecting their monopoly, which hurts consumers. Facebook had a different sort of story. Mark Zuckerberg said either we're going to buy our rivals or we're going to bury them. And it was even known as the wrath of Mark, that if a company wouldn't sell out, he'd go after them. And so you had companies like Vine, which was a, a product by Vine, by, by Twitter, where they found a way to cut off access to key resources so that Vine couldn't make it. Whereas other ones like Instagram and WhatsApp, they purchased them so they couldn't become threats. That form of conduct is predatory. It's not competing on the merits. It's finding a way to disable competition. Very helpful uh, summary of what's going on. Uh, it's, you've got to read through a lot of news to be able to get to the heart of what you just articulately and simply said. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. So why is smart policy so important and why is it so hard to create these days? It feels like you know, we're not creating much policy and, and that's a problem. Um, and maybe that's a, a misperception, but you know, what's going on with policy and why is it so hard? You know, it's interesting. The phrase, if government was like a business is one you hear sometimes. Mm -hmm. And if you had a business run by run the way government was run, you would basically make decisions by what team you were on. So imagine you're at a company and you're trying to decide the best product and you decide it based on the religion of the manufacturer, and you buy an inferior product because you're on their team. Politics has become, at the national level, tribal. We're treating politics like religion. And the problem is a lot of the issues that matter, infrastructure, data privacy, competition, policing, are not ideological issues that can easily be defined through these religious terms. However, so much of our politics has become tribal, people are being forced to their corners as opposed to let's sit together around the table, let's have an open conversation and say, how do we improve policing? How do we improve data privacy? How do we improve competition? If legislators could have that conversation in, let's say, committees without regard to party, then you could solve problems. But that's been disabled by this tribalistic mentality, this polarization, this demonization, where people now run for Congress saying, I don't even want to sit on a committee with someone if they're from another party. Or if someone believes X, I don't want to listen to them. You've undermined the very basis of dialogue and problem solving if you take that viewpoint. Now, I am fortunate. I'm not in that world of Congress. I try to influence Congress on issues like the ones I mentioned and I recognize what a steep hill it is. When I work with other state AGs, like on the Google or Facebook suit, or protecting consumers from airlines that are acting in ways that hurt consumers, or to address the opioid epidemic, I'm doing that with colleagues who are both on the Democratic side and the Republican side. And we're working together to solve problems, and I'm looking for good ideas on all those issues wherever they come from. When I'm working in Colorado, how do I improve our criminal justice system or protect, protect our water? I'm working with legislators, county commissioners, sheriffs. I don't care what party they're in. It's about solving problems. So I'm fortunate that my public service is not in the toxic mess that is Congress these days. Mm -hmm. But for our nation, the problem you described is real, and it's a grave concern to me. 
and it will impair our future if we can't find a way to fix it. And is it fixable? I mean, how do we get there, right? So now we're back to Viktor Frankl and belief. Exactly. <laughs> it's easier to believe. We have to believe that we can get through this dark time. Good answer. Good answer. All right. You have experienced so many things in all the various uh, roles that you've had in you know, presidential administrations, working in the Supreme Court, AG. What are some of the biggest leadership lessons you've learned? Humility. Justice Byron White, who I also work for at the Supreme Court, was the most humble person I've ever met. This is someone who was an NFL all-star while graduating first in his class at Yale Law, was Bobby Kennedy's deputy at the Justice Department. He was, as one of his colleagues put it, both Superman and Clark Kent. And yet he was incredibly humble. No one has the right to be arrogant. And so part of the challenge that all of us have is if we think we know something, to be really, really cautious. I'd much rather lead with humility great advice. All right. So if there is, besides lead with humility, if there was one other piece of advice uh, you would give to leaders who are looking to be exceptional at what they do, what would it be? Be your best authentic self. Don't try to that, be somebody else. And why is that so important? Because people can tell if you're real, if you're authentic, then you, this is what we talked about earlier, Carrie, you can build that trust. If someone is putting on airs, or is feeling insecure because they're not the way they want themselves to be, um, it's gonna get in the way, it's gonna create friction. And then if you can be your best authentic self, be humble, be self-aware, then build the team and try to compensate for your limits. Because no one's gonna be great at everything. Everyone's gonna have their weaknesses. So one of my weaknesses will be when I'm talking about a project, I will often move quickly and not provide all the context. So I need to find people who are good to me, are good about saying, wait a minute, slow down a minute. I didn't catch that. Or someone who says, I'm not sure that everyone has the same context here. Let's explain it. That's why the best work is done in teams. And so I guess I'll second advice. First advice, be your best authentic self. Second, find good teammates who compliment you with an E, compliment you, and who help you be a more effective leader because no one can do it all by themselves. That's great. Great advice. Uh, here, here. I agree with you 100%. <laughs> All right. And finally, my final question. Uh, the name of this podcast is Reflect Forwards, which has many meanings. Uh, we've discussed uh, a little bit before. What does Reflect Forward mean to you? It means that you have a learning mindset and that as you go forward, you go forward with a spirit of reflection. And you're always asking how can I improve? How can I learn? A lot of people are driven by inertia to keep doing the same thing the way they always did without thinking about it. And one way to think about politics is you've got two parties, the party of inertia and the party of innovation. The party of reflecting forward is the party of innovation. Huh, how can we do this different? What do I learn from how we did things? And that's the party I belong to. Ah, I love it. I love it. All right. Uh, before we go, you're running for uh, another term for Colorado's AG. Uh, so when, what's that process like? And, and how can people find out more about your campaign and find you? I'm easy to find. So go to Phil for Colorado and go to our website, 
coag.gov, and you can hear or see or read about competition or about water or about policing and public safety, whatever issues interest you. And then what I would encourage everyone to be, your best authentic self and an engaged citizen, which means as you think about an issue, please engage others. And if you don't agree with how I look at things, I'd love to hear from you about how you see things because I know that I'm always missing something and you may see something I'm not seeing. And then if you want to get involved, you can um, jump on my mailing list website, philforcolorado.com is a uh, website you can look at. If you want to support me, there's lots of ways you can do so. What I would just tell everybody is be an engaged citizen and whatever political activity works for you, we need you. Um, back to what we talked about, Carrie. if we have citizens who are indifferent, who are disengaged, that's disabling for our democratic republic. And I know there's a lot of toxicity out there and a lot of things that people like politics makes me want to take a shower. I don't want to think about it. Try to find a way to engage as a citizen that works for you because we need engaged citizens or um, our republic is in real trouble. Great advice. Well, Phil, thank you so much. You're such an inspiring leader. Uh, this was a fantastic interview and I really, really enjoyed myself. So thanks for coming on the show. Right back at you, Carrie. Keep up the great work. Thank you for spreading the word. Absolutely. All right, hang tight and we'll be right back. All right. Thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Phil Weiser. Such a great guy. Thank you again for listening, and I look forward to hosting you on the next episode of Reflect Forward. If you have any questions you'd like to ask me during uh, one of my episodes, please send me an email at terrysiggins.com or DM me on, in, on uh, LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, review. It is always helpful. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Oh, 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 oh,